0: included here today with will sloan and you're listening to the important cinema club and today We're talking about something that I hope gets us a lot of clicks, Robert Pattinson. You
1: know, there was a time in the late 2000s, early 2010s, when if you wrote the name Robert Pattinson on Twitter, you were guaranteed, I don't know, 200 retweets. What?
0: But he's just some British pretty boy, right, Will? Why are we talking about him?
1: You know, Justin, when you suggested that we do an episode on Robert Pattinson, my first reaction was to laugh. (laughs) (laughs) But I mean, of course, I got back on board because, as we know, he's somebody who has parlayed his stardom into making films for the likes of, oh, David Cronenberg, Werner Herzog, James Gray, the Safdie brothers, Robert Eggers, Claire Denis. And in fact, now for the first time since Twilight, he's working on two back to back blockbusters, Tenet and uh, the Batman movie. And even those are director driven. However, he still feels disreputable. You think so?
0: I mean, I remember when they announced that the Batman was coming out and it was going to be uh, Robert Pattinson that was going to take over the role. It's really funny that people were throwing themselves on their sword, being like, no, Ben Affleck, why are you getting rid of him? And this Robert Pattinson guy? What? Twilight? Who was saying this? You know. You know those people. Nobody I know. Come on.
1: Right. People who haven't kept up with art cinema in the 2010s. Well,
0: that's why they only associate him with Twilight, because they're not going to see Queen of the Desert or High Life <laughs> or any of those movies, right? So that's all they're going to remember him from.
1: Well, Robert Pattinson, I think he feels disreputable, at least to me, he, he, uh, to the point where I would laugh a little bit when you suggest him as an episode for a few reasons. He made his career as a teen heartthrob. And he made it in Twilight, which, popular as it is, is one of the most reviled movies ever made, probably, at least in certain quarters. So
0: you watch it for the first time for this episode, right, Will? Because I did. I had never seen these movies before.
1: Yeah, I had never seen Twilight, the 2008 original. Uh, I I had never seen it. Um, But I I felt like I had, because as I was watching it, you know, these images, um, everything about it has become so, so sort of iconic, like it or not
0: fact that it's all blue cuz it was shot in the 2000s Oh man <laughs> It is so long Nothing happens in it. You know, we're not here to criticize Twilight because, man, we are late to the party, if that's what we're doing with this podcast. I
1: didn't see Twilight when it came out, but I did see a number of movies that Robert Pattinson was in. I saw uh, Little Ashes, where he played Salvador Dali. You know, I saw Cosmopolis when that came out. And uh, I gotta say, it took me a while to be convinced by him.
0: I'm always interested when someone who's like a star takes chances on stuff. And not the like, oh, you know, I want to be like dramatic. Like, Robert Pattinson wasn't taking these big showy roles to prove that he's a dramatic actor. It was pretty clear from the get-go he was doing this stuff because it genuinely interested him.
1: Yeah, and these are not commercial choices. These are not Oscar choices. Um, a, a piece of writing that I like about Robert Pattinson is Scott Tobias' review of Cosmopolis for NPR when it came out, and it opens with the line, A matinee idol for the age of HD TVs." Robert Pattinson has a face that seems to require a higher resolution. Glossy and ghostly pale, all sleek lines and an alabaster skin. Um, he's an absurdly good looking man, obviously, and he's good looking in a way I, I don't know, I'm, I'm losing my train of thought Are you
0: losing yourself in his eyes? You're like oh, you have an image right in front of you? Of you know, him. I
1: wish I could say I was losing myself in his eyes, but in fact I think it's his eyes that are uh, two reasons why uh, it took me a while to embrace him as an actor, because you look at a movie like Cosmopolis and he's so beautiful, but it's like porcelain in that movie in particular there's like a deadness there, it, I I found it very hard to connect with him. Well,
0: I mean, some would argue that's the point of Cosmopolis. (laughs) I know, I know, but it's still hard to connect with. (laughs) I mean, I love Cosmopolis. I think it's very funny and it's challenging in a way that is like almost Andy Kaufman-esque where you're like, is there something wrong with what I'm watching? Has David Cronenberg just like lost it? Like you watch the first 20 minutes of that movie, which is about Robert Pattinson plays a billionaire who wants to go get a haircut in New York. Toronto <laughs> what when uh, like riots are going out and the world is practically imploding? And like those first 20 minutes, the sound doesn't sound right because you're hearing the voices and there's nothing else. It's like somebody recorded it on just a clean microphone.
1: And it's great that it was filmed in Toronto because it gives it gives the movie that sort of nowhere land look. It's it's like kind of a fake New York and the green screen outside of the limo is so fake looking. Doesn't look right. That first scene where he's sitting with Jay Baruchel in there, like it looks like the green screen in the room.
0: (laughs) Yeah, it does. It does not look real. And if you listen to David Cronenberg's commentary track, he's actually like very conscious about that as well. That he wants it to be fake and... Just off-putting when you watch it. And
1: Pattinson's performance in Cosmopolis, if anything, he's dialed back even further from Twilight. Like, in Twilight, there's, you know, th- those moments of stuff that he's doing with his eyes, you know? But but in this movie, it's, like, flat monotone, you know, just looking straight ahead. Like, he's a blank canvas. Yeah,
0: And when you watch it, you're, I mean... I guess the assumption is people will bring their baggage from twilight and watch this very confusing movie, which is like, am I supposed to like this person? No, you're not. Cause he's a terrible person. But at the same time, because he's a protagonist, you can feel people watching it. And he's Robert Pattinson trying to find reasons to motivate the actions that he's taking. And it's, In reality, it's just this emptiness on screen. So one
1: reason why I feel like it took so long for me to embrace Robert Pattinson as an actor is he's so ice cold. There's so little to, at least in those early performances, there was so little to grasp onto. He seemed almost not human, you know? He is
0: so good in The Rover, which I watched this week, and it is not like any of those performances. He's basically like playing somebody who's mentally handicapped, but walking that fine line between like, um, you know, I am Sam. (laughs) I
1: I hear you. Simple Jack. And
0: the problem with that film is that performance is trapped in just like a generic post-apocalyptic film. That's just, it's fine, but it's like all those movies that were coming, like the road and stuff like that around that time. Let's go
1: back and talk again about Twilight. Let's open this thing up and uh, chow down.
0: So I think that like, if I want to be very generous to the performances of K. Stew and Robert Pattinson in this movie you know they could be playing it so flat and affectless because the viewer can then project whatever they want on those characters so like you know uh, Bella in the movie she could be anyone she literally has no traits and her performance is not kind of emotional or reactive or anything and the same thing goes for Pattinson in the role. Anytime he has to emote and like be a vampire where he's like jumping around on those branches it's so uncomfortable it feels like he doesn't quite know what to do with his face or how to say the lines
1: It was interesting to watch this movie after having seen Pattinson and Kristen Stewart in so many other movies because this movie is the urtext for their stardom and you know like I say they are iconic performances. You've heard People joke about these performances so often, and everything they've done since then seems in some way a reaction to these performances. You know, I went into this movie with an open mind because, as I said, this movie is really reviled by a lot of people, and I was a bit suspicious of that.
0: Well, it's very popular as well, though, Will. Oh, yeah. So maybe there's a reason for its popularity.
1: So I suspected that one of the reasons why it was so hated was because it's for teen girls, Mm -hmm. and as we all know, Things targeted to teen girls, things that are feminine, are obviously taken less seriously than stuff targeted to teen boys. Yeah,
0: like Duke Nukem 3D and The Matrix (laughs) and Fight Club.
1: Uh, I will say that that's still true, although this is a really fucking terrible movie. Uh, I had a really hard time getting through this. I was desperate towards the end, because there's there's nothing, there's nothing to look at. Oh, well, actually, there's a lot to look at. There's that blue tint to look at that never goes <laughs> away. It's like they put an Instagram filter on the whole movie.
0: They needed to underworld it, Will. That was popular around that time.
1: There's not, at least to my eyes, I know that there are armies of teenagers from 2008 who would disagree with me, but there's not a lot of chemistry between the two leads. Oh, and no. I know we've seen that YouTube supercut of Robert Pattinson making jokes in interviews about how much he hates these movies, and he'd be the first, obviously, to tell you that he's bad in these movies. Um, I think I know what he's trying to do, though. I think he's trying to do that thing where you're very cold and minimal on the outside, and you're sort of radiating charisma. And if you look at the eyes, you can see like there's a, there's a spark inside. There's a little spark of madness in there, like early Al Pacino, you know, that's
0: a very generous reading as opposed to him kind of looking bored and, you know, he'd rather be anywhere else. At one point he saves Bella from a, you know, van that's coming to crash towards them. And they share that first intimate look. And it's like a look of slight constipation on his face.
1: I'm also thinking of that scene where they're in the forest together. And he's, he's saying to her like, say it, say what I am, you know? (laughs) (laughs) Hey,
0: I don't sleep.
1: I just watch
0: you sleep.
1: That's okay, right? I think that's what he's trying to do. Or at least that's what he's trying to do the extent that he can, because judging by the interviews that he's given it, about these movies. I'm not sure how much he's even the author of his own performances here because, you know, uh he makes fun of the facial expressions he's required to make. He makes fun of the contact lenses he has to put on and, you know, the stupid things he has to do with his mouth. Like, these are clearly orders that he's being given. I mean, these
0: are films that are 100% producer driven. Like, if you watch them all and they all have different directors. They all feel exactly the same. So they were going through a pipeline that the people that were making them knew exactly what they wanted and everybody just fit around that mold, including Stuart and Pattinson. It's only later on when Pattinson, you know, thanks to that success, could do weirder stuff. Like, I mean, you saw Queen of the Desert as a Herzog um, completist, which is not a good movie, but Pattinson is charming in it as Lawrence of Arabia himself.
1: Yeah, it would would be hard to be really good in that one. Um, I I respect the choice, uh, but I, I would say that I was really sold on his talent when Good Time came out.
0: Now, Good Time! is a perfect kind of blending of movies because we already love those directors. And then when you have Pattinson in the mix, that's just hitting my sweet spot right there. And I remember all those articles that were coming out that were like, he's so committed, he masturbated a dog.
1: I don't remember that. Could you expand on that story? Oh,
0: it's just like, I think the uh, safties gave an interview at one point and they like, said that like Robert Pattinson was like masturbating a dog while lying in bed to get into character while they were filming but they backed away from that later on they're like no that didn't actually happen I I think we misspoke and it's like how do you misspeak around that situation
1: I mean pretty much every movie that he's made since Twilight has had to reckon somehow with the fact that he's one of the most beautiful people in the world a lot of movies like um James Gray's Lost City of z or um what's the other one the lighthouse the robert eggers movie you know they they try to combat it by putting a big beard on him you know any anything to obscure just how how sharp and wonderful his cheekbones are but this one is about what a beautiful man he is the
0: thing about robert pattinson and when i was watching this stuff i was thinking about like what is the difference between him and tom cruise Now, we talked about it in our Tom Cruise episode, is that when Tom Cruise is on screen, there's like a desperation and like a hollowness to everything that he does. You watch him in something like uh, Jerry Maguire, where he's supposed to be kind of like the cool, bumbling guy, and it's just kind of pathetic. While Robert Pattinson in Good Times, it's a different kind of energy. It's almost like more of a raw nerve. There's that hollowness is not there that you get with someone like Tom. Well,
1: Tom Cruise is constantly trying to affect coolness, coolness, but also normal human interaction. Mm. Whenever you see Tom Cruise on a talk show, you know, he's always trying. He's trying so hard to act like a normal everyday guy. I mean, I'm sure you've heard the story that Christian Bale's performance in American Psycho is modeled after Tom Cruise. Yes,
0: I've heard that story.
1: (laughs) Whereas the movies that established robert pattinson stardom and i would define those movies as being twilight and also cosmopolis those are movies that are like the the two establishing texts for the the two paths of his career those are movies where he's like an alien you know he's hollow and he's minimal and it's and you're not even sure if there's anything inside you know
0: and when you get to something like good time he's playing a bad guy and again like cosmopolis they have that kind of ammunition to play with, where it's like, oh, you know this star, so let us get you into his journey in the movie. And then once we start throwing these just terrible moral decisions that he's making, that's when you have to reckon with him, not as a person, but as a character in this movie.
1: The Safdie brothers in both of their two recent movies, uh, the success of Good Time and Uncut Gems depends a lot on not just the actor but like the star mm-hmm. you know so uh, uncut gems works because it's one of the most beloved entertainers in America playing this this scumbag and in this one um it's it's this famously beautiful uh, man but it's
0: almost like a kind of a twist of what the twilight films are about this vampire that will do anything for the person that he loves this uh brother that'll do anything for his family, specifically his brother, and going on this quest to do it. That's what people loved about Twilight, this obsessive serial killerness about the character. And you get that in good time. This person willing to do anything to, like, get out of this situation up to a certain point when, like, there's no coming back, where you cross that threshold. It could be different for everybody, where it's not fun anymore, and it's just, oh, God, it's gross. Now it's more like watching a train wreck. I also
1: think Robert Pattinson, like... Uh, he he looks exactly perfect for the role. Mm-hmm. Like he's obviously he's very beautiful, but he's like just beautiful enough. Like, I, I feel like if it were a more egotistical star in the role, he would look a little bit better. You know, like he's constantly wearing the shittiest clothes. He always looks just a little bit dirty in his facial hair. Like he's a dirt bag. Right? I like to imagine
0: <laughs> the safties like woke up one day and they were like, oh, man, you're still too pretty. We're halfway through shooting. We're dyeing your hair for the last act of the movie.
1: Obviously, he's far and away the most attractive person in the movie, but he's still of the worlds of the movie, you know?
0: I'm curious if there could be a normal Robert Pattinson performance at this point. I mean, I guess High Life gets pretty close to that, doesn't it?
1: Yeah, it does kind of. And... You know, I haven't seen every movie that Robert Pattinson's made. Uh, maybe The Lighthouse gets to it a little bit. Yeah, I but mean, he obviously- has that
0: crazy accent, right? So, and he's in this surreal situation. I'm just thinking about him as an actor, kind of like the Leonardo DiCaprio problem of when I heard an interview uh, with Leonardo DiCaprio on the Mark Maron uh, show, I realized I had never actually just heard Leonardo DiCaprio not acting. And that was so, like, surprising to me that you know, oh, wow, that's right. He is always, it's always such a big project that you never get him as a person. And I'm curious if, like, that has not happened with Pattinson in anything post-Twilight.
1: Yeah, it's funny. I haven't seen Remember Me, which was, I think, the first <laughs> movie he made after Twilight, which also, you know, I don't think did his reputation any favors. I've seen clips of it, though. You, you've seen and, the
0: ending, right?
1: Well, yes, of course. <laughs> okay.
0: <laughs> if, we won't spoil it here. People, go look up at that ending because it is so funny and it feels like it's out of an SNL bitch. But I
1: also saw a clip of him like crying and emoting in that movie. Mm. And I mean, he, he was really not very good, at least in that out of context clip.
0: I mean... You know, he got trapped in that cycle after the Twilight, or I mean, at the beginning of the Twilight movie, because he also made Water for Elephants. Who can forget the classic Francis Francis I Am Legend Lawrence uh, adaptation of the literary novel that you always see waterlogged in front of somebody's house because it's about to be thrown out in the garbage.
1: You compared him to Tom Cruise. I'd also like to compare him to Leonardo DiCaprio, Mm. who is somebody else who, you know... A pretty boy, a teen heartthrob, somebody not taken especially seriously as an actor who made these strides towards legitimacy, let's say, legitimacy in quotes, by working with great auteurs. Is there a difference between the two?
0: I think there is a big difference, which is that Leonardo DiCaprio is always aware of his own stardom. Like he would not work with somebody like Claire Denis. If you look at the big swings that Leonardo DiCaprio took once he was on the rise, it was like, oh, he worked with Woody Allen. He worked with Martin Scorsese. Like, those are commercial serious filmmakers. He worked with Steven Spielberg. Like, the difference between Robert Pattinson is I don't think that he cares very much about his public perception. Otherwise, he wouldn't make the movies that he's making. While Leonardo DiCaprio seemingly is constantly aware of that. It's
1: true. I don't see DiCaprio really subverting his image a lot in movies. And I mean, I'm sure somebody could say, oh, well, you know, what about...
0: Wolf of Wall Street.
1: Yeah, but I mean, even in Wolf of Wall Street, I mean, he's he's great in that movie, but... Mm. But I mean, it's a big, it's a big star performance. Like you can imagine a vain person doing a performance like that. And
0: it's the same thing about The Revenant, which is, it's like, oh, I'm gonna take it as far as it can go. Like this is capital A acting that he's doing on screen. When you never get that sense with any of these Robert Pattinson performances.
1: I should say that, like, on the whole, I have probably found Leonardo DiCaprio more compelling on screen, Uh, maybe just because he does a lot of that capital-A acting. Uh, I, I still find Robert Pattinson a little cold and a little distant sometimes. Um, good time, I think, is a notable exception to that. I mean,
0: I would argue that like we're doing this episode and Robert Pattinson is like it it feels like he's just getting his feet wet in this kind of stuff, and that like him doing a Christopher Nolan movie and him doing a Batman film are like the best decisions he could make if he wants to continue to make. These, like, Claire Denis films, which he has on the docket. That's his next, like, big picture after these movies. I
1: am eager to see him as Batman. And, I mean, at this point, nobody needs another Batman movie. But I would be interested to see, like a rich, pretty boy, trust fund Bruce Wayne, you know? that That's what Robert Pattinson looks like. He looks like a privileged kid. Yeah,
0: he does. He should play uh, Batman with a British accent. Yeah,
1: he should, actually. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Dude, fans would lose their minds if that happened. Like, he went uh, over to London after his parents got killed and went to a prep school somewhere and then came back. Mm, would love that. Yeah, I'd,
1: l- I'd like to see uh, a Bruce Wayne who's just like a bit of a brat that you hate. <laughs>
0: he'll do that but that would be a definitely an angle i mean george clooney already did that didn't he
1: yeah yeah that's right i i forgot
0: (laughs) robert patson is interesting to me in that i am excited to see what he does next and like what filmmakers that he genuinely wants to work with and push in like interesting directions
1: I also feel like he's only getting better, and I also feel like we've only seen certain parts of his toolbox, and what happens when he gets a few more lines in his face? If
0: it was a different time, Robert Pattinson would definitely be starring in a Woody Allen movie.
1: (laughs) He would be, yeah.
0: All right, so as per usual, you can send us letters at importantcinemaclubpodcast at gmail.com. And our first letter is from Luke, and it goes... I've heard Will sing the praises of the Gilbert Gottfried podcast on Twitter. It's a wellspring of insider knowledge for film buffs please say a few words about the superlative program. Wait, is it that Gilbert Gottfried write this this email himself? (laughs) Will, maybe a standout episode or two? I
1: actually do love Gilbert Gottfried's podcast, which, I mean, if you had told me four or five years ago that I would be in love with a Gilbert Gottfried related podcast, I would say- Oh,
0: wait, you mean the guy that got fired for tweeting those things from being the duck?
1: And the genie from Aladdin. Whoa, 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 the genie. The parrot, the parrot. I'm sorry, Freudian Slick, the parrot from Aladdin. (laughs) I absolutely love it because, I mean, it's an example of... (laughs) I mean, it's crazy to think that back in the 90s, you had, you know, David Letterman and Jay Leno, and they would just interview whoever had the biggest movie on at that moment. But now, there are a million podcasts where you could have just the most absurdly niche stuff. So, you know, you could listen to an episode of Gilbert Gottfried's podcast with, like, Dick Cavett talking about all the times he hung out with Groucho Marx. <laughs> I mean,
0: I have two words for you. Drew Friedman. Any episode that he's on the Gilbert Godfrey podcast, you got to listen to. Even though that like, I was listening to them all in a row recently. And like, it, it's like deja vu because they go through all the same stories. Yeah, story. but I could listen
1: to that forever. Um, there was a recent one with Drew Friedman where he was talking about like when he met Groucho Marx. Oh, so good. And he talks about how he, I guess, became friends with Jerry Lewis towards the end of his life. And longtime listeners to this podcast will know that um, the next best thing to Jerry Lewis is Sammy Petrillo, the Jerry Lewis impersonator. And Drew Friedman is talking about how he broached the subject of Sammy Petrillo to Jerry Lewis. And I'm listening to this like, what a world we live in. What a miracle that I I now have access to this information. But
0: you didn't get to the end of that story, which he told Jerry that his friend was writing a biography about Sammy Petrillo and maybe if Jerry had time, could he just talk about it a little bit? And Jerry's like, ah, just give me the guy's number. He I'll said, talk about it. Why
1: would anybody write a book about Sammy Petrello? <laughs>
0: <laughs> and I'm sure Jerry's comments. There's nothing insightful in there, but it's just nice to have him. It's like when you get Jack Nicholson when you're doing something about Roger Corman.
1: Yeah. Oh, also any episode with like Scott Alexander and Larry Karaszewski. So
0: good. Yeah. Those are the guys that like they're going to start like talking about movies and like, I will not have heard about 80% of We them.
1: just need those guys like Drew Friedman, Joe Dante, Scott Alexander, you know, get, get them all in a room. Who am I missing? Just, uh, maybe Dana Gould, you know, just get them all in a room together.
0: Oh, but there's a ban on talking about Planet of the Apes. Yeah. Yeah, what I said is that there should be like, rotating like you know you don't need a new guest every week you just have like the same five guests that go to every podcast so you get to hear them every week but they get to bounce there off needs to be people. an
1: important cinema club for guys like us <laughs>
0: I mean, yeah, I guess there is. Well, I mean, is. We've talked about the movies that made me over and over again. And i like to point out that my man, Jesse V. Johnson, the director of Avengement, was on a recent episode of the show showing that my taste, I'm just ahead of the curve when it comes to this kind of stuff.
1: That was a great episode. I loved it.
0: I mean, the great thing about podcasts, like interviews like that, is that people that you never... Would think we're like massive cinephiles, like Jesse V. Johnson is like, ah, oh, yes, I've read the new Capra biography, and you're like, ah, yeah. oh, what? I mean, yeah, I guess Gilbert Gottfried movies that made me uh, Leonard Maltin every now and then, if it's like a Drew Friedman that's guesting? There was a good
1: episode his- of, I think it was Leonard Maltin's podcast where he had Joe Dante on, and they were telling a story about how Leonard Maltin was recommending, he, he ran into Hunts Hall at a Hollywood party. Hunts Hall from the Bowery Boys. Now I'm listening to that and thinking, what an amazing Hollywood party. <laughs> Sounds very A-list. <laughs> um, but, but he ran into Hunts Hall, found out that he really needed work. And so he knew that Joe Dante always cast, you know, these old timers and movies and so he whispered Hans Hall's name into his ear. Joe Dante comes back a few years a few days later and said, Hunts wanted too much money. What I
0: don't understand about that story is that Hunts Hall's last credits were Fred Olin Ray filmed. Did Fred Olin Ray pay up? Ooh, I would love a podcast with Fred Olin Ray every week as well because he knows his stuff.
1: I mean, the best episode of The Important Cinema Club is the one that I'm not on, and that's the Fred Olin Ray <laughs> interview.
0: The one that he ends with, um, yeah, I don't usually do interviews. And I'm like, Matt, why did you? Well, thank you for doing it with me. <laughs> That one is still surreal. That like, I'm like, I did that? I talked to Fred Olin Ray for an hour and he just talked to me on the phone? That was crazy. It was
1: heaven. I loved it.
0: I would like to point out that Fred Olin Ray did start a podcast that only lasted about 10 episodes where it's just him talking, telling stories and you can only find it on Spotify. So search Fred Olin Ray to Spotify and you'll find those shows.
1: Fred should have asked you to be his co-host.
0: Yeah, mysteriously started right after I interviewed him like just a couple of weeks. Who knows Why? Uh there was a good oh yeah, the a great Leonard Malton story is like he was talking about that he had a comedy festival and he showed a Wheeler and Woosley film and it like cleared the audience <laughs> out. <that> like <laughs> Nobody liked it. And on the episode his daughter's making fun of him and you can hear Leonard Malton going like, Well, I still like Wheeler Wheeler and Woosley. They're still funny. Oh to man, me. I
1: listen to that and it's like I want Leonard as my friend. Leonard, if you're listening, I'll watch We learn Wolsey with you. I
0: would yeah, just a podcast where I could just ask Leonard Malton questions about like I'll just open a film encyclopedia and be like, what about this, Leonard? Oh, oh yeah, wow, yeah, that'd be great.
1: I find Leonard Malton very unreliable for any movie made after 1970. but before that he's great.
0: Yeah, he'd be happy to talk about anything before that. And yeah, that's fine with me. I don't need to hear anything about After the 70s. Well, thank you very much uh, for giving us the opportunity to just talk about podcasts, Luke. And I hope we gave you some suggestions in there. Did you hear that podcast listening is actually on a downturn, Will? Since the, like, stay-in-home stuff happened?
1: I mean, I know mine is because I don't commute anymore.
0: Exactly. That's why, is that people don't commute. I mean... Good to listen to when you have chores to do in the home. Or exercise, which everybody should be doing. Our next letter is from Sean Curran, and it goes, Hey, Justin and Will, big fan from Australia here. Our quarantine measures are just beginning to fire up, so I've taken the opportunity to introduce my girlfriend to a relic from another age, Austin Powers. I'm wondering if you'd ever consider doing an episode on Jay Roach. I love listening to your Ron... That was a dramatic pause I just took there. Not an error in editing. I loved listening to your Ron Howard episode, and Jay strikes me as a similar sort of figure. Okay, if you listen to a Ron Howard episode, I never want to put myself through something like that again.
1: (laughs) Well, that was your own damn fault, because you insisted on watching ten Ron Howard movies.
0: Although, Jay Roach is limited to only two genres— broad comedy and politics. He has a truly bizarre run of directorial credits. I found the Austin Powers movies to be surprisingly fun and a strange breath of fresh air with all the strange set pieces and visual gags. I can't imagine a comedy like this being made these days and it's interesting to think about how studio comedies have changed. If you have nothing particularly insightful to say about Jay Roach, unimaginable. What are your thoughts and memories of Austin Pyres and the Mike Myers boom as two proud Canadians? Thank for all the entertainment and insight over the years, Sean.
1: Well, Sean is absolutely 100% accurate uh, that Mike Myers is Canadian because... You may recall that in the late '90s, when the Spy Who Shagged Me came out, like Mike Myers was was the Drake of his time. He he was the pride <laughs> of Toronto. Uh, we loved him.
0: We've been doing this so long. I actually like went. We must have done an Austin Powers episode, and we did. It was our second Patreon episode. I have no memory of it at all. And on the subject of Jay Roach, ah oh man, I don't think I've ever seen a Jay Roach movie. That if I watch it now, I would like it. Of course, I was a teenager. I loved Austin Powers' The Spy Who Shagged Me. Funniest movie in the world. Everybody thought that. We were all drinking the Kool-Aid. But now, even by the time Meet the Parents came out, it it was just like a leaden brick. Did not like it at all.
1: I watched austin powers the original actually quite recently and i by recently i mean i think i watched it two weeks ago uh, (laughs) as you do (laughs) early in quarantine because um my my girlfriend and i were having like a netflix like a, a virtual netflix party with some friends and of course austin powers was a good consensus choice So, you know, we watched it and, uh, you know, I had an okay time with it. I got to say, I was sitting there laughing at all the all the classic bits, you know, him driving the little the little mini cart. And uh, I realized watching it that Sean is right. Movies like this don't get made anymore. And the reason for that is Mr. Judd Apatow. Uh, Sometime around the 40 year old virgin, comedies became all about like dudes riffing with each other and a lot of improv, whereas the kind of wacky, aggressively silly flights of fancy of the Myers universe became suddenly out of fashion.
0: I'm sorry. Just the idea of you being like, ah, the good old days when Mike Myers was just sparking every youth's imagination. Will Ferrell could still wear brown face and make jokes. <laughs> I, I... <laughs> And all the jokes in Austin Powers made you go, ah, oh, yeah, that was funny when it happened in Airplane.
1: <laughs> I do think that... Goldmember is a god-awful movie, and, I mean... We gotta do it, Will! We gotta watch it! We we actually should watch Goldmember, because it's impossible to even decipher it removed from its original context, because it's all, like, callbacks to jokes from the earlier movies. That movie only makes sense if you're living in a moment when everybody is saying these lines.
0: (laughs) And if people, like, if you're younger than me and Will, we gotta make it clear to you, everyone was saying those lines! (laughs) (laughs) To the point that there's a pretty funny joke in the Clerks animated series about somebody being like, do you think the Austin Powers impersonations will come
1: back? I sometimes wonder if it's even possible to make another Austin Powers movie now because it was all about like a swinging 60s spy who gets thawed out in the 90s. I mean, it it doesn't, the the premise wouldn't make sense anymore.
0: Uh, They did. It was called... Johnny Dangerous and Johnny Dangerous 2 and Johnny Dangerous 3. I'm sorry,
1: three. you're you're making a mistake. You're thinking Johnny English. Johnny English.
0: Johnny English. So, sorry. I was imagining in my mind the great Johnny Dangerously, Michael Keaton and Rowan Atkinson coming together finally and doing a powerhouse duo. When are we going to
1: get a, a Johnny Dangerously reboot? That's my question. That's a mighty brand that's right for reviving.
0: Once, you know, movies start up, and studios need a big hit, that's when they're, we're really going to get the dregs. That's when you're going to get the Austin Powers movie. You know what? I would bet money. Austin Powers, reboot, coming to Netflix. Oh, yeah, you're
1: right. You're right.
0: There's no, like, Mike Myers will be like, yeah, sure, give me, like, $90 billion. Now, I think we got a little bit off track, and Jay Roach is a director. I mean, he has done political movies, and I remember remember when he was doing, like, oh, he's doing a Sarah Palin film, or he's doing this. The problem with them is, they are so toothless that it's like, again, if you're removed from the context of what's going on, you'd be like, why are they being so mean to these awful people? I had
1: absolutely no interest in watching Bombshell, and it was hilarious when that came out because it's like, "Who who is this for? It's for, like, liberals who hate Fox News but like Megyn Kelly, That's an audience of no one. He made
0: movies like The Campaign. Oh, yeah. He also made Trumbo, a movie that seemingly is made for me and Will. And you watch it and you're like, I guess. I could have just read a Wikipedia article. I haven't
1: even seen it.
0: (laughs) I mean, it's fun to just watch it and go like, ooh, they got that person to play this blacklisted screenwriter. But that's pretty much it. And it's like, again, there's no like, perspective on it he just wants to like you know tell the story so no one is offended and that is the most boring thing that you could do in the world i listened to a podcast with him. i think it was maybe a um director's guild podcast which are great because <laughs> it's often just some hack that has a studio film that that was just released and they just need to do a QA every week so it's like uh, i guess martin is gonna be interviewed about the foreigner by roger donaldson <laughs> And it was like, Jay Roach was talking about like crafting bombshell. And he's like, you know, we test screened it and made sure what worked and what didn't. And it's like, oh, yeah. So you cut off any edges until it's just mush. And it's nothing. Mm
1: -hmm. I couldn't agree more. Let's let's uh, never talk about him again. So
0: what do we do on our Patreon this week, Will? Because I'm sure people, they need stuff to fill up their time.
1: Oh, man. Well, I've been on a real George Romero kick, uh, having been trapped indoors you know, being afraid of the apocalypse. So we talked about Day of the Dead, the third in the original uh, trilogy, and probably still the most, um, um, what's the word I'm looking for? The least loved?
0: Wait, wait, put an end to that, of the original trilogy. (laughs) That's
1: right. But still a a film that has aged like fine wine. Mm,
0: Yeah, Uh, just as impactful as it was back then. And so you can become a Patreon subscriber for $5 a month at patreon.com slash club. So next week we continue our hunt for clicks. We're gonna do Agnes Varda, which I think is man, she got real popular in those last ten years, didn't she? Oh
1: yeah, she was the adorkable grandma of cinema.
0: <laughs> and I've seen all of the uh, heavy hitters. I remember going to a date and seeing Gleaners, and I, I think at the Ontario Cinematheque.
1: Wow, cool! Did did you did you score? <laughs> no
0: so uh i don't know what we're gonna watch um i guess cleo the psych uh, cleo to five to seven is that what it is in english yeah
1: cleo from five to seven yeah i mean that's obviously her breathless so we should definitely watch that but maybe um i don't know would you want to watch one sings the other doesn't yep, or we should that's watch a good the- one
0: and we should watch the beaches of agnes so uh that's what we're going to be doing next week and until then my name is justin clue i'm will sloan thanks for listening interrupt your regular programming for a few announcements. First off, I'd like to announce that we're doing something a little special. We're calling it the Important Cinema Club Cinema Screening Series, and it's every Friday night, 8 p.m., Toronto, Canada time. We'll be screening a movie for Patreon subscribers. So there'll be an intro, and we'll try to do a Q&A afterwards where people can ask me questions, at least for this first one, and I'll answer to the best of my abilities. And hopefully we can have a discussion about the movie as well. The one that's coming up this Friday, April 3rd, is going to be one of the greatest action films that you have ever seen, just based on a purely stunt level. I'm not going to say what the title is. It's actually on the Discord server because I asked a little bit earlier this week. But from this point on, I think maybe I'll just leave it a secret and give hints throughout the week. And hopefully it'll get people excited to discover something new and experience it with a bunch of like-minded people. I hope everybody's safe out there and... I hope something like this will give you the feeling of getting together and enjoying something as a group. So, if you want to see these screenings and get all the other bonus stuff that we have on Patreon, the hundreds of episodes, the Discord server, you can do so by going to patreon.com slash The Important Cinema Club. It's $5 a month. And I'd also like to thank the new people who have recently become patrons. Adam Rockwood, Cormac Corcoran, Mike Goke Akinaraniye, and Malcolm Baum. Thank you so much for becoming patrons. We cannot do this without you. And this is especially the case right now where putting together an episode is ten times as lengthy and as hard as it was before. And if you haven't yet, please, please, please go on iTunes and write us a review. We appreciate it, and it gets a lot more eyes, especially at this time to discover the show and it just you know it keeps us going and it allows us to try new things like this important cinema club cinema series and I haven't done this in forever but if you'd like to listen to me also talk about movies somewhere else you could do it by listening to the No Such Thing as a Bad Movie podcast which is a bi-weekly show that I do with April Atmansky and Colin Cunningham where we watch one so-called bad movie every week and then we each pick something positive that we liked about it. The upcoming episode is Ghost of Mars so that's definitely a must-listen. And we've done a lot of episodes before then, so if you just want something a little bit lighter and jokier, check out No Such Thing as a Bad Movie. And if you just want to know what's coming out or what has been coming out on home video, I would really appreciate it if you checked out the Bay Street Video podcast. I've been doing this for a number of months now with the product manager of Bay Street Video, Mark Hansen, and every week we go through like the 50 releases that are coming out. And we just discover new films. We joke around. It's a lot of fun. We're not trying to sell you these movies. We're just discovering them and finding interesting avenues that we can go down either talking about the film or if we haven't seen it, talking around the film and other stuff that it reminds us of. So that is a real rapid fire conversation. It's the Bay Street Video Podcast. There's a whole back catalog that's not really dated because you just discover new movies every week. And me and Mark will also continue to try to do this, maybe not in the what's new on Blu-ray and DVD this week, because due to the pandemic that's going on, there really isn't any new releases. So we'll figure something out. And the more listeners we get, the more it will give us that fuel to keep going. And finally... Yeah, I got a lot of time on my hands so this is a big plug-based episode. If you're interested in any of the Gold Ninja video releases, there's 10 of them now. These are lovingly put together packages with new commentary tracks, new video essays, trailers, bonus films, liner notes with every release, custom covers, limited to 200 copies, and I had a whole bunch of stuff that I was supposed to do this month and next month, but due to everything closing down, I can't get the supplies I would need to continue to make new releases. So if you want something that was released by goldninjavideo.com, get it now. While the post office is still running and while I still have the materials to make more stuff. So they're limited edition and now they're even more limited based on the materials I have. Who knows when all these stores will open up and give me access to them. So if you were curious about them and you were waiting, oh, I just want more to be released. Don't. Get them now at GoldNinjaVideo.com. And with all that, we now return you to your regular scheduled programming. Well, you just did something that sickens me to my core, and by that I mean you read Woody Allen's biography, originally meant to be published by Hatchet, but then pulled off the schedule, and it got picked up by somebody else, I believe.
1: It did, and it's it's available now. You can buy the ebook. Uh, I, I, I assume you could also buy a print copy as well. And, you know, there are a lot of perks to fame. I'm sure you found that, Justin. <laughs> whenever whenever we go to a restaurant, we get seated at the good table. You know, we always get on the VIP list at every party in town. Um, well, th- one of the perks of being a host of the important cinema club is a a fan. That's right. A fan actually sent me an ebook of, <laughs> of Woody Allen's autobiography. So I didn't even pay for it guys. And I wolfed it down. uh, Wait, you didn't
0: do the usual thing you do with uh, autobiographies and just skip to the movies that are shit to see what the person says about them? Oh, I mean, of
1: course I did. But I mean, in this case, um, I I didn't skip to the movies. I skipped to the allegations. Mm. And I got to tell you guys, this book. uh, So it is basically one third, you know, witty Woody Allen prose about growing up in Brooklyn. And it's one third. Very dry and uninteresting stuff about making movies and uh, how and you know how beautiful all his actresses were. Oh my and, god!
0: I read a review that like had some highlights of that where it's like Woody Allen is basically like the cartoon wolf when he's like oh writing about the stuff. Oh,
1: absolutely! It's it's really creepy. And then one third, you know, Mia, Sunyi, Dylan stuff, mm-hmm. which really takes the wind out of you <laughs> i mean i mean it's it's his attempt at you know his side of the story and as i was reading i mean he he's quoting like investigations that cleared him he's quoting testimony from the son who defends him it just goes on and on and i'm reading it and i'm thinking you know i realized this book was written for me as the target audience but um Do I really need to know all this?
0: (laughs) Are you more of a like ignorance is bliss kind of guy?
1: (laughs) After reading just like seemingly 200 pages of this family drama, it's like, you know, this this really doesn't have anything to do with me, does it? Mm -hmm. It's also a bit like reading Lolita because it's like you're inside the mind of a psychopath as he's like justifying all of his absolutely indefensible actions.
0: So like, did you get to the chapter like, if I did it, this is how (laughs) I would have done it.
1: No, but it's like he's talking about getting with Sun yi and he's like,
0: well, you know, uh,
1: but my relationship with Mia was so bad at that point. And, you know, I, I started hanging out with Soon-Yi, and, you know, we really we really bonded because she was also unhappy in that house. And and you're reading that, and you read that, it's like, you realize you're bonding over the fact that you hate her mother, and she hates her mother, right? And also, right?
0: you're bonding because you are the authority figure that somebody much younger than you can, oh, they're on my level, and this is novel, and it feels special, and then abusing that authority. I think I saw a line that said, like, you know... If it wasn't me that was doing it, I'd find it disgusting as well. And it's like, ugh, oh
1: man. And he also writes something about how I, I could see in her... I, I could see in her that, that she, uh, she had so much potential and she was going to ripen if only somebody could love her. And, oh and
0: God, he uses the word ripen?
1: He uses the word ripen. And I mean, I, I'm sorry. I, I finished reading this book maybe five or six days ago and I just haven't been able to shake it. It's like been a genuinely like kind of upsetting experience reading it.
0: What did you think it was gonna be? Like when you heard that he was writing something?
1: Well, I mean I basically thought it was gonna be this. Mm. I I've been following this man my whole life. I've read everything he's ever written, seen everything he's ever made, so I didn't expect to be quite so affected by you
0: think, it. You think you thought that you had like gone past that hill that you can watch Annie Hall bi weekly like you usually do and you're like, this speaks to me but just not tell anybody.
1: Honestly, this this book has like you know, made him grosser to me than pretty much anything else.
0: <laughs> you've come, <laughs> you've come face to face with the man.
1: Yeah, and it and, and like, it's hard
0: because <laughs> it's like uncut at that point. It's just like it's written words on the page.
1: Yeah, you're you're stuck in his head, and it's like it's not a it's not a good place to be. This is not a good man.
0: I think that Woody Allen for me is defined by that really funny joke in The Simpsons where he's doing a Japanese commercial and he's like punching a bag, and he's like, "Ugh, what did I do to deserve this?" And then he's like, "Oh yeah." <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah. So I, I don't recommend the book unless you're you're insane, like me.